0: The Talking Race podcast from the Centre for Race Education and Decoloniality at Leeds Beckett University.
1: Hello and welcome. Today we're going to be talking about race and children's literature. We are joined by Lisa Stevenson and Darren Chetty. Lisa Stevenson is a senior lecturer in the School of Education at Leeds Beckett University. She's a course leader for the MA Drama and Creative Writing in Education and teaches creative arts and drama. Drawing on her experience as a primary school teacher, Lisa has worked creatively with a range of vulnerable young people using targeted interventions. She is founder of Storymakers Company and director of Storymakers Press, a practice-based research collaborative at Leeds Beckett University. Darren Chetty is a writer and a teaching fellow at University College London. He's published academic work on philosophy, education, racism, children's literature and hip-hop culture. He's a contributor to the best-selling book The Good Immigrant by Nikesh Shukla. Darren's also co-author with Geoffrey boyaka of what is masculinity, does it matter, and other big questions. He co-authored, with Adam Furnier, How to Disagree, Negotiating Difference in a Divided World, and co-edited Critical Philosophy of Race and Education with Judith Sousia. Darren writes, with Karen Sands O'Connor, a regular column for Books for Keeps, entitled Beyond the Secret Garden. He's a member of the Steering Committee for Reflecting Realities, a project run by the Centre for Literacy in Primary Education, examining ethnic representation in children's fiction in the UK. He has advised on diversity and inclusion for the Carnegie Kate Greenway Award and is a board member for researchers exploring inclusive youth literature. First of all, I'd like to hear a little bit more about your own work, so we've got a kind of flavour of the sort of things that you do. We're talking about race and children's literature, and I'm interested in talking about how you've confronted or grappled with the issue of race and racial representation in children's literature in your own work. So perhaps we'll start with Darren.
2: I've come to children's literature, I think, through my work with Philosophy for Children. So I was a primary school teacher for 20 years And really all that time, from from the time I was a student teacher, I I was involved in doing philosophy with children and involved in a movement of doing philosophical inquiry with kids. And I I think there's a lot of benefits to that. I'm really interested in in listening and, and dialoguing with children. But the thing that that I noticed was a bit of an issue was that how poor the materials were when it came to having philosophical conversations around race. And in fact, my first paper, The Elephant in the Room, looked at two books by David McKee, Tusk Tusk and Elmer, which are both, you know, huge selling books, but also very popular ways into having these conversations around quote-unquote diversity. And what I thought was really interesting about them is they're both books which really don't depict racism in any meaningful sense. Tusk Tusk has black elephants and white elephants... There's this sort of allegory of difference, but there's a sort of natural hatred of each other. There's nothing about any group taking land or power or enslaving the other. It's just they don't like each other. And I thought as, as a starting point for, for talking about racism, this is, this is really a problem. kind of misses out all the crucial elements of, of racism. So, yeah, I, I think that was how I started writing about children's literature and then found that, if anything, people in the children's literature world were more interested in my work Initially than people in in education, so I had the ch- I wrote a blog which then became the the chapter for the good immigrant. Uh, uh, you can't say that stories have to be about white people, which then looked at children's writing and asked. You know, a question that I'd ask myself a lot as a teacher, which is why so many Black and Asian children, when they're writing creative stories in school, will have a, a white protagonist. I mean, when I say so many, almost without fail, and and it was never remarked. So I sort of thought, well, what is it about school culture, about our, the reading diet we're providing, but also about the kind of conversations we're having with, with children that have, that have led to that outcome? So that was, I guess, me trying to talk about my practice, but also recognising that actually people have been talking about this for a long time in the UK people like for example Verna Wilkins who set up Tamarin Press has her own story of her her son coming home and, and drawing a picture of himself as as white and when she asked why do you think you're white she said no but this is for school so this this gap between uh, children's home life and, and school life it sort of fascinates mm. me. Then been lucky enough to work with Karen Sansa-Connor uh, who is a I think a sort of expert on, on black British children's literature and the history of it so we write this, this book for Keep's column but what she brings is a, is a really thorough historical grounding to how, how this work has, has been going on in children's publishing. I tend to do more of the sort of close reading of let's have a look at some of these books and, and what what is this revealing about how black and Asian children are being represented in, in contemporary British mm-hmm. children's literature.
1: Yeah thank you Darren. It's reflected this issue in the sort of diet of children's literature really across our former colonies Mamanda Ngozi Adichie says, you know, that when she started writing stories, she was writing about white characters who enjoyed having lashings of ginger beer. And she never even knew what lashings of ginger beer was, but because she'd read so much Enid Blyton, that's how she felt, you know, that she should be writing. So do you find that in when you've been doing work with children that not only are they reading so many books by white protagonists, but when they're asked to write, they also write stories about white protagonists?
2: Yeah, and and that sort of very two-dimensional sort of it. It would typically be Jack and Sarah or something. It would just be let's take two names that we think are very clearly English, because this you know this is also interesting happening for I guess Eastern European uh, students as well. But it, it's take what we think. School has been giving us, and give it back to them. And the irony then is that all the good things that writers do about bringing aspects of their own experience into their creative work is just sort of firewalls. So, so many children are missing out on that opportunity to bring their lives. Into their creative work, and I guess also that teachers would, you know, I, when I reflected back on when I started teaching and I was modelling writing, I was also often defaulting to sort of what I thought was safe territory, rather than talking about my, you know, my own sort of South African Indian Dutch heritage in my characters, uh, or, or picking on, on uh, a heritage from that was represented in the class. I would again default to these sort of, I guess, you, you, the easiest way of describing it, is sort of Enid Blyton characters, white middle class, probably probably live in the countryside. <laughs> You know, and I'm teaching in the East End of London all this time, and yet I think that's that's just how we see children's literature, which is why you know, Beyond the Secret Garden seemed a good name for the column because the Secret Garden is almost the archetypal children's literature, British children's literature book. In that, there's this magical place of enchantment.
3: When Mary Lennox was sent to Misselthwaite Manor to live with her uncle, everybody said she was the most disagreeable-looking child ever seen. It was true too. She had a little thin face, and a little thin body, thin light hair, and a sour expression. Her hair was yellow, and her face was yellow, because she had been born in India, and had always been ill in one way or another. Her father had held a position under the English government, and had always been busy and ill himself, and her mother had been a great beauty who cared only to go to parties and amuse herself with gay people. She had not wanted a little girl at all. And when Mary was born, she handed her over to the care of an ayah, who was made to understand that if she wished to please the mem sahib, she must keep the child out of sight as much as possible. So, when she was a sickly, fretful, ugly little baby, she was kept out of the way, and when she became a sickly, fretful, toddling thing, she was kept out of the way also. She never remembered seeing familiarly anything but the dark faces of her ayah and the other native servants, and as they always obeyed her and gave her her own way in everything,
2: and yet black and brown children literally don't get a looking.
1: Yes, and and she and and in the secret card and a protagonist has been raised in India and that's that's mm-hmm. sort of depicted as a, a very wild, exotic and unruly place, isn't it? So there's a yep. kind of backdrop yep. of empire there, but in 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 rather negative connotations. Lisa, you've also worked as a primary school teacher tell us a little bit more about your own work and especially story makers and what you've tried to do with that project.
4: Yeah, absolutely. So, I have uh, I worked for a primary sc- as a primary school teacher for nearly 15 years in in Bradford and I think you know sort of drawing on to the things that Darren was talking about is sort of very aware I think as a, a teacher of coming from a place of white privilege when I'm working with with p- the particular classes of children that I was working with and also the power I think as somebody as perhaps as somebody coming from a background in in theater and working in theater for social change I think I always had that critical voice that was asking questions about children's voices in the classroom and how perhaps how the curriculum was giving them opportunities to link their learning to their everyday life experiences. And, and for me, I think that having that sort of background in creativity as well led me to really place value on the imagination as a, as a powerful tool, particularly for sort of resistance against oppression, if you like, or to give a space where children can really express themselves and who they are, and to learn from each other as well, a really important kind of tool for thinking and learning about things from other people's perspective. So I think those, that my background in teaching and obviously in theatre for social change as well, when I came out of teaching, was really concerned with that the lack of creative opportunities for, for young people inside and outside school, particularly those from underrepresented communities. And so we started Storymakers as a collaborative, really, bringing together, I suppose, artists, educators, particularly um professionals who were working, writers, theatre makers and who were really interested in that imaginative process and that was started in 2017 and then in sort of mid-2018 I'm going to talk particularly about the Storymakers Press so from that work and also drawing from a lot of the reports like the report from the Centre for Literacy and Primary Education that you know really highlighted the lack of diversity in children's stories as well. We wanted to bring together I suppose the the expertise really within, within our particular school of education so three people in particular and create Storymakers press really, and so that drew from the work of Tom Dobson, who who's who has a, a, a particular expertise in writing stories with children. So hybrid texts, so working with children to create stories using their ideas. Uh, my own interest in though the, perhaps the imaginative processes uh, that open up spaces for children to bring their lived experiences in, into learning, and then also we were really lucky to. Um, bring in Anna Aride who is the children's publisher as well so we had this this the team of three of us and then we started the press and we were specifically what we were focused on doing was really encouraging children's voices and creativity and with a view to under to publishing underrepresented narratives and, and issues and that was about making sure that children could see themselves in the books that they read. And so we have, we work in schools over eight, sort of eight sessions. The whole process takes about four months. And for the first eight sessions, what we're doing is we are really creating a community where children feel that they can comfortably share their ideas, use drama for that uh, during the workshops. And then they create their own characters, backstories, and um, at every stage of the process, they're involved in the the. The publishing as well, so everything that they're creating those workshops from their illustrations becomes part of the story. And so that over eight weeks is the creation period, if you like, we call that the world building. And then we go on to actually the the writer. Then we'll do a first draft of the the story, and the children again are involved in every part of the publishing process. So we've done today four stories. I'm going to talk today. I'd like to talk a little bit about Zalfa which was a story that we created in Bradford with sixteen Muslim. Girls in year six. We've also created, uh, we're just about to publish uh, a book that we created with eight fantastic children in Bradford as well who were from a Roma background. So that's the books and then they, they come with guide and very much like Darren was um, talking about before, the guides, the aim of those is to support schools in providing kind of rich dialogic conversations around the stories and to encourage critical reflection. So what the books are about so sort of aspirational stories for children who aren't represented in fiction and, and then the guide Is an opportunity to take some of the um, the themes that emerge from the stories and to explore them. So that uses drama again, and it provides a framework to think about exploring the stories in detail. What struck you about
1: the stories that the uh, young people produced? What struck you? You know, were, were you surprised by any of the the types of narratives, the types of protagonists that they created? Did it in any way challenge your expectations of what would be created?
4: I think if I was to talk about the Zalfa Amir, I think that there is. I mean, if I perhaps give two examples from, from Zalfa Amir. So the story created with the girls, they very much created the character of Zalfa. And so they kind of, obviously, they decided her physical appearance, her attributes. So we've got the idea that she, it, this was a retelling of Kashmiri story, I should say, called The Inauspicious Bride. And so the girls wanted this the, this, the line in the book is she's powerful, responsible and definitely not little. So they definitely wanted a very, very strong female protagonist. But again, the... the Creating the community took two or three sessions with the girls for them to really then say the way they felt so that rather than what they thought we wanted them to hear so I think there's something very much uh, drawing on what Darren said about kind of uh, creating a a space where children can actually say what they want and the the girls when we came to naming the character they did give her a western they they wanted to give her a western name and again sort of part of our process when we are working because we are aware that we, we are facilitating a creative space but we are also coming from a place of white privilege and this is the girls story we encourage we have a pathway Way for the press that encourages young aspiring authors from black like, Asian minority, minority ethnic backgrounds, so we worked with this book on one of our undergraduate, with one of our undergraduate students, Jay Alley. And she was absolutely brilliant. She attended the workshops, so, and it was great. And it was actually Jay, it was wonderful for the girls to then have a to have a, a writer as well, a young writer. And, and Jay encouraged them, it was important that Jay encouraged them as well as all of us to think about other names, and then uh, they decided on calling the characters Alpha. So I think that wasn't surprising. It very much echoes what, what Darren said, but it's, it's, uh, for me it's really what I learned from that, and I continually learn, is it's creating these these investing in these spaces with young people so that they can really express themselves in the the way that they want to. So I think that's one example and and interestingly at the end of the story when we went back to share and read the story with the children at every stage and and they get to decide, make decisions on plot line and the illustrations etc. One of the things that the girls talked about that they were most proud or what they liked most about the book is that the character not only looked like them but felt like them. And so that was something that they talked about, and also that, that it is used their language, as they say. So, for example, we've got uh, they created some extremely bossy aunties in the story. This was kind of a big part of the storyline for them, and you know, the, in the story, and and Jay again could really flesh out the character of those aunties, drawing from her own lived experiences as well. So, but she, you know, there was Urdu words in in the story. The, the aunties called as Better. Beater a lot of the time, and the girls talked about that being really meaningful to them as well, and an important part of the story. They felt that the story was was theirs.
1: When I was in Year Eight, I was taught about the slave trade, and um, my teacher started the lesson by proclaiming that slavery has nothing to do with race, and um, I'm feeling so angry. And like I wanted to say something, but I didn't have the language to say it. Like I knew in my gut I was wrong, but I was just speechless. Like I remember my mouth going dry. After that, I decided I'm not going to take GCSE history. My parents had taught me stuff about my own heritage. So when I saw it like being actively absent in the classroom, it just made me feel like I, I was absent in history itself.
2: Education is extremely powerful.
1: What I wanted to ask you as well, we've seen at the moment, you know, the renewed political energy behind the Black Lives Matter movement. And there's been a renewed cause to decolonize the curriculum. It feels as if people are, are ready to listen. And perhaps, you know, this is a, we are at a time of serious change. Let's hope that we are. But in terms of the idea, you know, decolonising the curriculum in the UK, how do you think this needs to be done at primary and secondary school level? What sort of key practical changes could be made to the curriculum do you think to achieve this obviously it's a, that's a big question and we're not going to decolonize the curriculum with just a few changes but but where could you know where would be a good place to start do you think i'll ask darren first
2: mm. yeah i think i think this is a, a real challenge i think decolonization sort of phrase and, and the discourse has has you know grown uh, in the last five, ten years, but I do think that a lot of people who are talking about decolonising the curriculum or decolonising things might be using the word in, in different ways, so, you know, and and, and I'm very conscious of, uh, it's Tuck and Yang's paper, decolonisation is not a metaphor, and that actual decolonisation is, is, you know, is talking about you know radical changes in terms of often about land redistribution etc when people are talking about the curriculum they're, they're perhaps not even talking in that sense so i guess I, I tend not to use decolonization because i think it's a word that unless you're actually then offering you your very specific definition with has so many connotations what i think is really important is that that our curriculum actually addresses what people from Stuart hall to charles mills have talked about as a sort of ignorance and a. Affl- forgetting so it seems that in Britain in particular there's there's a real forgetting of of empire it's remembered in some ways, celebrated in others and yet the details are are somehow left out of curriculum materials in in all kinds of ways so I think in terms of Black Lives Matters we need to be working towards a, a curriculum and a school that clearly demonstrates that Black Lives Matter that you can walk into that school and you get a sense of that now I've not really come across many schools that are doing that in terms of staffing, in terms of what they're teaching, in terms of what they're hanging on their walls, you know, the way the sort of where things are given value. And I do think obviously Black Lives Matter at the cutting edge and, and it's an inception is talking about the killing of, of black people by racist police. But I think looking at it in a sort of broadest way, it's, it's about the valuing of black lives equally. And And when we understand that our history... And that, you know, the sort of history of the the disciplines is one of not uh, affording equal value to all people. And this is something that, you know, I just didn't get a didn't really get any understanding of at school. There was some kind of peripheral understanding of racism. But it would have been a shock to me to learn that, you know, some of the greatest European thinkers were invested in creating a system, what they're either called the scientific system or a philosophical system of thinking, and that those thinkers are still revered to this day, and that that contribution to racism is kind of just neatly edited out of their, of their bios. We don't... So when we t- teach Kant, we, we teach about his philosophy, but we don't teach about his racism, even though it probably is integral to a lot of his philosophy
1: i I teach post colonial literature, and often this, my students arrive in the first year having only studied white American and white European authors so it 's the first time only at university level that they're studying texts by people of color or that are not um, European or american and I think that there is probably a an issue around even having a kind of vocabulary to talk about race, to discuss race. And if we perhaps are able to reach children when they're much younger and encourage these kind of conversations, then they're, they're going to grow up less afraid of actually talking and confronting this issue. What do you think, Lisa?
4: Yeah, I, I totally agree, obviously, with, with all of that. Um, I mean, in two things that perhaps I would add to that would be there's a, a huge job to be done in terms of initial teacher education which is where I'm placed as well and and that needs to be there needs to be a huge investment in that that's something that we're looking at not only around picking up on Darren's talked about in terms of some of the thinkers that our young trainees engage with because obviously what we're doing is we're we we need to unpick all the learning that they've had in school as well but a, a kind of a clear exploration across three years which think in which they think about their own identity and experiences and positionality around race and ethnicity and they really get to they think about the child as a learner and kind of notions of deficit and they are looking and really thinking about how they can get to know their children in their class, talking to head teachers about the ways they engage with race and racism as well, asking those conversations when they're going into school and then also as we talked about thinking about the curriculum and the different curriculum areas and how you know and how they can create learning that really is meaningful to children from Black, Asian minority, and ethnic backgrounds, and I think all of that is really about teachers seeing themselves as agents of change, empowering them to think to think like that. And so that's something that we kind of are really looking at over the next three years. So I think there's a, a huge area around initial teacher a- education. But also as we've picked up on before that idea is, uh, of children and young people seeing themselves as age- as agents of change and I think and I'm obviously interested in the idea of changing that those opportunities for so this is perhaps about pedagogy and the way we might teach rather than curriculum and another sort of addition to the big picture. but the child seeing themselves as actively engaged and a subject of their own decision rather than some, you know the idea of an object that's just filled with the teacher's knowledge and those dominant viewpoints. So the idea of engaged pedagogy and engaged learning which is definitely what we're trying to look at through the guides and that being and 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 really sort of investing in that so that actually we've got children who are open to viewpoints and they are questioning their own their own viewpoint in that same way and and doing that in a, in a safe way so through the fiction is a really powerful way to do that because they are required to think um, as if they are perhaps a different character and so I think there's opportunities to Explore those sorts of that sort of learning, and again, you know, then that that leading to democratic listening and moving, moving from the fiction to the group to yourself to the group and then back to yourself again is a way to kind of encourage critical inquiry, and 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 that needs to be done from a again from a place of understanding, but perhaps you know that is a place to start with children as, as a laying the groundwork for anti-racist work so that children as well see themselves as agents of change, children from all backgrounds, especially children from white backgrounds as well.
1: What current trends in terms of plot lines and illustrations do you see in popular children's books? Because some of the books that I'm reverting to, to read my own children, who are seven and ten, are actually my mum's books uh, that she bought me when I, in the seventies, and and they are you know much more. They're sort of they would be considered quite radical back then, but they are books which have really good ethnic diversity representation. There's a lot of feminist stories as well. And so I'm reading these books for my children. In terms of what is out there at the moment, especially for primary age children, what would you, what would you say are the, are the current trends and how do they need to be challenged? Darren, maybe you could let us know.
2: Yeah, it's a tough one. That there's definitely. I think I became aware after the good immigrant chapter of just of, of being careful not to inadvertently say, "Oh, there are no black and brown writers out there." There actually are quite a lot of them. <laughs> the problem for many is that they might be uh, at smaller presses, or they might be at a larger press, but not have the marketing budget of certain other authors. So, so one of the trends. That you know is throughout publishing, I guess, is the celebrity author. So right now, you know, the big seller is is David Walliams, who you know, less than a decade ago was was browning up on television for for, for laughs. Now, one of the BBC's most successful television comedies, Little Britain, starring David Walliams and Matt Lucas, has been removed from all streaming platforms because of concerns about the way that characters from different ethnic backgrounds are portrayed. But certainly, you know, someone who's already become famous in some other sphere, ha- suddenly putting out a kid's book seems to be a good way that ki- kid's publishers sell unit. Investing in someone from marginalised community who doesn't have a large public profile needs a bit more work and and yet, if we're going to actually expand what what's out there and develop a new generation of writers, it, it's what's required. I think in terms of plots, there's a lot of, there's a lot of detective books I'm seeing right now, there's, and there's a real difference I think between now and the books that I read in terms of if you 're writing for for younger authors there 's an expectation it 's dialogue 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 plot, plot plot, and those sort of moments of, of pausing and reflection, which ironically we 're still trying to teach children a good writing they 're often not seeing in the reading, partly perhaps because books are are competing now with so many other media that there needs to be an immediacy, something exciting needs to happen almost on every page, certainly in every chapter, and, and, and so the style of writing shifts. And then one other thing that I haven't seen people talk about, but that, that I wonder about, is obviously children's literature has this long tradition of sort of killing the parents, you know, the orphans, the Harry Potter phenomenon goes way back, and, I, and one of the way, reasons it does that is to sort of allow the child then to, to be free to become autonomous. But I do think there's something interesting often for racially minoritized children in the way that they might relate to family, particularly if they find themselves in, in predominantly white areas, but not exclusively. But the idea that the, the extended family is, is seen as like a burden to children's literature and therefore must be, you know, somehow dispensed with, I think might miss out a lot of good storytelling that could be about how children value their friendship groups, but also value their, their family. And I think Zainab Mian's books, Planet Omar, does that brilliantly. Planet Omar is a naughty little Muslim boy who also his parents are in the stories as well as his schoolmates but I don't say enough of that I think.
1: That's a really interesting point about the killing off of parents and I, I my kids love Roald Dahl and they always the, you know the parents it's as if the parents need to be killed off and then there's a, you know it's a blank slate for which to start the plot but as you say it you know there's a that that's perhaps quite a eurocentric plot line. Lisa what do you see in terms of the trends in in children's writing and also how is your how has your book uh, challenged that? The, the book that came out of the Story Makers project.
4: Well, I think the a lot of the trends being actually around is a big, big, big boom in children's nonfiction and kind of so, and quite a few around activism like the story for rebel girls and the little leader books and biographies for girls and an increase in books about the environment unsurprisingly because that's what a lot of children are anxious about so yes yeah, so I but i think that our we focus of particularly on middle grade fiction so seven to twelve because i think that because we did some research and felt there was a real there was a lack of stories there kind of fiction books particularly with um div- characters from black asian minority and ethnic backgrounds so that. That's why we've focused on that particular area as well. I think the fact that the children in all our stories are bringing their lived experiences means that there are aunties and family members and you know and, and those are the sorts of things that they, they're writing from lived experiences so they are if they bring those to the space those elements are in the story. I, I guess in terms of thinking perhaps about about schools again there's a big move towards reading for pleasure as well and schools definitely seem to be very much tied to as you said um, books that that are vetoed by Time, and school libraries are, are definitely... There's a real issue with school libraries being out of date as well. So, so again, I think, you know, as Darren said, looking for these sort of smaller publishers, and, that, and we try to do that through events like our Storymakers Festival, kind of trying to bring a community together and, and really promote those, but also working with people like the Centre for Literacy and Primary Education as well. You know, they can really support schools to bridge that gap and drawing from their expertise because they sort of are foregrounding, really representative books. But, yeah, again, good to go back in terms of those trends as well, and the David Walliams, the funny, the comedy, the fantasy, they're definitely things that all the children that we've worked with have brought into the story. So so the girls at Girlington, for example, have created a mixture of comedy because we deduce again if you look at researchers and, and Darren mentioned this there is there aren't very many protagonists from black Asian minority ethnic backgrounds who were funny for example so and then the girls wanted to create a really funny sassy girl so so their so their story verges on between horror and it's definitely very dark as well but horror and comedy because that's what they wanted to bring. Excellent. Yes, and so it would be great to
1: hear an extract uh, of that book. So I know that you have a, a reading prepared there.
4: I was about to say something as Aunt Banno turned, turned around and let out a gasp. Beta, you're back! She ran over to me and hugged me so tightly I was in danger of suffocating. Miss missed you, Beta, Aunt Banno said softly, holding my face in her hands, then stroking my hair as if I were her favourite pet. I would have met you at the station if I knew you were coming home today. Aunt Jamelia scoffed. You can't even walk to the shop round the corner, Bano, let alone the train station at the bottom of Manford. It's OK, Aunt Banno, I said, feeling sorry for her. How could she live every day in this house with a sister who was so mean? Our holiday started two days early, I explained, hoping that neither of them would question me further of this. And besides... I missed you guys. Guys, said Aunt Jamelia. I can't see any guys in here, can you? And we missed you too, Beta, Aunt Bano said, ignoring her sister. Let's get you upstairs and changed out of your school uniform. I'll put the kettle on and take out those sweetmeats you like so much. I love my Aunt Bano, but she did have one blind spot, her sweetmeats. I'd never like them, never eaten a whole one. Always put it in my pocket or dropped it on the floor. But as far as Aunt Banner was concerned, meat meat some of my favourite food of all time. Lovely, I replied, somehow managing to sound as if I meant it. Darren, you,
1: you've been a contributor to a hugely successful collection of stories, The Good Immigrant, and your story called You Can't Say That. And I was hoping that you could share a reading from that story with us today.
2: A few years ago, I taught a Year 2 class in East London. I'd built up a good bank of multicultural picture books and resources and shared these with the class whenever seemed appropriate. When it came time for the class to write their own stories, I suggested they use the name of someone in their family for their protagonist. I wanted them to draw on their own backgrounds, but at the same time I was worried about making an issue of race. When it came to sharing their stories, I noticed only one boy had acted upon my suggestion, naming his main character after his uncle. He had recently arrived from Nigeria and was eager to read his story to the class. However, when he read out the protagonist's name, another boy, who was born in Britain and identified as Congolese, interrupted him. You can't say that, he said. Stories have to be about white people. Let me back up for a second. I spent almost two decades teaching children aged between four and eleven in English primary schools that serve multiracial, multicultural, multi-faith communities. Over that time, I've come to notice that whenever children are asked to write a story in school, children of colour will write a story featuring characters with traditional English names who speak English as a first language. This has been the case across the schools I've taught in, with barely an exception. Yet I don't recall it ever being discussed by teachers in these schools or in any of the courses on teaching writing that I attended over the years.
1: Thank you. Thank you. And tell us a little bit about that story and you said that you were perhaps quite surprised by the amount of attention a good immigrant got and it's probably opened up quite a few discussions you know around the subject of your contribution. Yeah, you tell us a little bit about that journey?
2: Yeah I guess The Good Immigrant partly it was a good collection of essays but also the, the timing had been linked with uh, the referendum at the time in a lot of news stories and a lot of media coverage, meant that it it, it reached a you know, a far bigger audience. If i 'd known how many people would read it when I was writing it, I probably would have never finished the essay so yeah, and it also meant that in children 's publishing, I got invited to to write you know, forwards for a couple of books to speak at events. And then when uh, Farah was putting together the, the CLP, the Reflecting Realities, invited to be on the, the steering group for that. So there's there's been, I think, more discussion yeah, in the last few years, which is by no means me trying to claim that I've sort of started a conversation. As I said, this has been going on for decades. But I think for, for a range of reasons, it, there seems to be a greater appetite for thinking about it. And that publishing, you know, has had to put its hand up and say actually yeah there are things we could be doing better now whether you know how much of this becomes cosmetic and becomes reputation management rather than deep change always always remains to be seen but I think for those of us who are trying to make some changes you have to sort of seize these opportunities and and run with them and and get into spaces that perhaps otherwise you might not have been in and make sure that other people are coming there with you.
1: So if you for people listening to this podcast who are interested in coming away and perhaps trying to diversify the stories that they read their own children or perhaps they might be teachers you know and, and want to try and diversify the types of stories that their class are engaging with what advice would you give listeners
2: it would be to you know to set aside some time to to read widely and probably to do some research as to how to do that I mean obviously the, the, the column Karen and I write is is online and free the beyond the Secret garden in books for keeps and I guess i i'm I'm keen for people to read our column and things like that because there's also a discussion of the books. And children's literature, despite being a really large percentage of, of the books that are sold in the UK, are, are children's books. There's not a lot of uh, journalism around children's literature. The Guardian cut back. There, there's not a lot of reviews. What, the reviews that go out tend to just be, you know, the, the, the press release being rewritten. What we're trying to do is critically engage. And uh, in the hope that teachers will have the space to do that as well, to think about the books. So we do sometimes include lists. But I'm often being approached with just give me a list and, you know, I'll buy those 30 books and then we've, we've done race. And I think that's not going to do it. And until you're starting to think about the issues, think about the difference in the way certain people are representing the same subject matter. We recently did a comparison of two books that talked about uh, the Windrush story. And the second was written by uh, Candace Jimberry, who is a, a black historian whose version was just so much richer than the other one although the other one was in a big publishing scheme of work so it's it's looking in detail at, at what's going on as well as obviously getting more books so so the lists have a role to play but I just feel like they're not the whole story.
1: Thank you and uh, Lisa in terms of your project you very much you know helped to provide a platform and facilitate young people from a range of ethnic minority backgrounds to write their own stories. What about writers who are not from an ethnic minority background, but may want to explore that in their fiction? You know, is, what is the best way to go about that? Is it to consult? Is it to, to write stories which come, you know, from the children themselves that are inspired by children? You know, or, or is it best to for really to allow that space for ethnic minority writers?
4: In terms of the classroom, it's very much about encouraging children to write from their own experience. Um, if, as a writer, if I think particularly about how we've approached the project, the, the press we try obviously again we're, we're aware of ourselves as a team with that area of expertise so we very much say so for example when Jay was working with Tom uh, around the hybrid text we 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 will try to use our undergraduate and postgraduate routes to give opportunities to uh, aspiring writers and then also we try and mentor them so actually Jay was mentored by Sita Bramashari as well so we're, wherever that's possible in those spaces so obviously we're working within for us as a team, we're working within the the project itself, but and where that's not possible then we've been using inclusive minds as well. So we're working closely with inclusive minds, particularly on the on the Roma story, because we were there wasn't writers who came forward. So we've sort of worked very much with the children, but then worked with inclusive minds. So I think it's about making I mean our 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 list of credits reads more like a film a list of film credits it's a dialogic conversation within itself so that's how we work I guess in the classroom it would be about encouraging all writers to express their voice and giving them permission to do that and there's a body of work to be done there for you know, for writers themselves, I'd be looking for from my own experience I can only draw from. But our MA really encourages writers to work and to again to write from their lived experience and, and to draw from our project as not a perfect case study, but something that we're constantly working at. We're constantly asking ourselves those critical questions as a team. I'm not sure if that answers, but just drawing from the experiences of what of what we're doing.
1: Yes, absolutely. And what and what would you in terms of, you know, advising listeners in, in how to draw from a more diverse representation? in terms of children's fiction, what would you advise our, our listeners to do?
4: And again, I'd advise them just to seek out, you know, to invest in time to to really source. For example, I mentioned the Centre for Literacy in Primary Education as well, and they're looking at having a hub in the North as well. But again, looking at specifically, there, there are some fantastic people doing brilliant work around bridging that gap who are really promoting representative books so I think it would be seeking those out and then you know seeking out opportunities as well you know we're looking at doing a series of sessions for teachers for example around engaging with those particular stories but I think it's yes it's it's I suppose it's investment really
1: yeah yeah. So you've you both you've both mentioned yeah, taking the time, you know, to seek out less well known publishers and presses, and making that that effort to to find what resources are available. Well, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you both. Uh, thank you so much, and I, I look forward to having further conversations in the future. Thank you. Thank you, Darren. Thank you, Lisa.
0: I'd like to thank Dr. Emily Zerbel-Marshall, our guest interviewer on episode three of Talking Race. My thanks also to Darren Chetty and Lisa Stevenson for their insights into children's literature and why there's an absence of black and brown characters in children's books and what can be done about this. I'd like to take the opportunity to recommend to listeners that they read the Reflecting Realities report produced by the Centre for Literacy in Primary Education. Have a look at their website for the report. Also mentioned in this episode of the podcast was The Good Immigrant, edited by Nicholas Shukla, and The Secret Garden column written by Darren Chetty and Karen Sands O'Connor. That can be found on the Books for Keeps website. If you're interested in the MA in Drama and Creative Writing, please contact the School of Education at Leeds Beckett University. And to order your copy of Zalfa Amir, please email storymakers at leedsbeckett.ac.uk. In our next episode of Talking Race, dedicated to race and education, Professor Vinnie Lander talks to Kursa Jan, a senior leader in school, and Daniel Kabedi, Vice President of the National Education Union, about racism and anti-racist education. So join us for that episode. Thank you very much for listening.